I invite you to grab your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to cover five verses this morning. And we are in the middle of a large extended section going from chapter 3 verse 1 to chapter 4 verse 13 on a warning not to fall away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Title of this morning's message is Don't Harden Toward Jesus. Don't harden toward Jesus. The warning passages of Hebrews are notoriously difficult. They're difficult to understand. They're difficult to understand how to apply, how to apply to your life as a believer. So he said last week, they're given to the church. They're given to the gathering of the saints. They're given to those who would be the redeemed people of God. And they're not designed to be issued as a threat. Uh, The goal of a warning passage in Hebrews is not to make everyone in the room doubt their salvation. And perhaps you've heard Hebrews preached in that way. You hear the warnings, the warning passages, and the only thing that seems to be accomplished by the warning passages is a fear in everyone's heart that they must not be good enough or faithful enough to be a believer. But that's not the point of these warnings. These warnings are gracious warnings. They're given by an author who, who doesn't want anyone in the church to somehow be professing to be in Christ and think they're in Christ, only to find out on the day of judgment that in fact they were never in Christ. And so the warning passages in Hebrews are to stimulate within us a self-examination that causes us to look to the Lord and to persevere in the faith. That's the goal. The primary goal is that you would persevere in the faith, that you would self-examine, and even as you compare your life to the Scriptures, you'd come out saying, I trust in Christ. Therefore, rather than shaking my confidence, this deepens my confidence that I belong to Him. Well, at the same time, if you're someone who's named the name of Christ, you've professed to follow Him, you're in and among the people of God, and yet you don't actually know the Savior, then that God's word would shed light on your darkened condition and show you your state and lead you to him. So to remind you of where we're at in the context, this writer has just been extolling the fact that Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only answer for your sin problem, and he must be believed. And so we're beginning to get the the sense as we go through this letter that the author who knew this congregation well was saying, I'm beginning to see a couple of early warning signs that are concerning to me. He's going to say in in Hebrews chapter 6, hey, I still, I'm actually convinced of better things concerning you. I think you're actually in Christ. But I'm starting to see the early indicators in your spiritual walk that caused me enough concern that I'm going to issue you several warnings. Not as a threat, but to make sure that you're actually in Christ. What he's concerned is that there are those who are gathering each week on the Lord's Day, those who are sitting in the seats, those who are among the redeemed, and yet there's a danger in their souls that six months from now, 12 months from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, they're no longer going to be in the faith. And he's wanting to urge them right now to deal with that seedbed of unbelief in their hearts. How do you consider the sin of unbelief this morning? How do you consider the sin of unbelief? You're no stranger to it. It plagues all of us. Right Before you come to salvation in Christ, uh, your unbelief problem is, is simply hardened and complete unbelief. Your heart is always cold and dead to the things of God. The word of Christ is is something that you have no experiential knowledge of. Uh, God's word is really meaningless to you because you're an unbeliever. You don't even believe there is a God. And if there is, you don't believe that the Bible is his infallible word. And if you do believe that, then you don't actually ever embrace it and accept it as such. But there's another kind of unbelief, and this is the unbelief that you experience as a believer. This is the unbelief that says, I trust Christ. I'm putting all of my eggs in that basket. That is my Savior. And yet every day I wake up and I struggle to believe 
that profession that I made. It's a real profession, and yet I, I waver in unbelief. And so what the author is, is wanting to do today is to cause everyone in the church to stop and say, do I consider unbelief in my life when I see it in the category of little sins that aren't that big of a deal? Or is it something that, that I'm actually concerned about when I find it? See, typically the sins that bother us are the embarrassing sins. The sins that have a chance to be more humiliating or, or seem to put us in a bad light. And if we're honest, self-included, unbelief just doesn't sound that bad. It's kind of a, an internal sin. It's a little bit hidden. It doesn't usually come out in some of the ways the big sins do. Yet this author is wanting to make sure that no one misses out on a saving relationship through Jesus Christ because they're deceived that because they're in the pew, because they've named the name of Christ, perhaps been baptized, they've joined a church, they're part of a Christian family, that somehow that means they're in Christ when there's unbelief within them that would actually demonstrate that they're not in Christ. So the tone as we go through this passage is an author saying, I don't want you to get to Jesus or to judgment day and find out that you're not in Christ. And so this message this morning is very simple. Don't become hardened to the voice of Christ. Don't become hardened to the voice of Christ. The way that the author is going to unpack this is first he's going to give an exhortation against hardness. Really a, a warning that comes from the Spirit of God. It's a, a caution for us. Then he's going to move on to an example. This example is going to demonstrate hardness. It's Israel's testimony. It's really a, a case study, if you will, in unbelief to help us understand what this looks like. And then finally, he's going to explain an effect resulting from hardness. What's the net net? What's God's response? What is the consequence of undealt with unbelief? As our passage begins in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, today, if you, right now, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This author wants to make sure that you and I don't become hardened to the voice of Christ. And so his first point here is an exhortation against hardness. It begins in verse 7 saying, Therefore, and, and here's your main statement, church. It's the whole argument. Therefore, to draw a line, do not harden your hearts. That's the main statement of this whole paragraph. Therefore, do not harden your hearts. That's the sermon. Everything that we look at this morning is going to relate to understanding and unpacking this one instruction. The therefore goes back up to verses 1 through 6, and it's, it's saying, therefore, in light of the glory of Christ. Therefore, in, in light of the fact that you have a faithful servant, excuse me, a faithful son who who unlike Moses, who is merely a servant in the house, Jesus is the son over the house, deserving of more glory because of his faithfulness, because he's the merciful high priest that offers you the gospel. Do not harden yourself to his voice. And so the psalmist, or excuse me, the, the writer of Hebrews is going to make a biblical argument here and he's going to draw back on the Psalms. And so when he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, he's quoting Psalm 95. So showing the inspiration of Scripture. The fact that every word of truth is relevant any day, any time, any era, it doesn't matter what. Sometimes the Old Testament gets neglected in the church. It doesn't get as much attention as it ought to get. Clearly, the writer of Hebrews is saying, boy, if I'm going to preach to the church, I'm going to be just in the Old Testament, drawing allusions and making connections and drawing theology from what is taking place. And so what he's doing is, and it's fascinating, he's going back to Psalm 95, which is actually going back to a previous event recorded in Numbers and Exodus. 
So the psalmist said, I'm going to draw back on an old lesson and use that in my uh, instruction to God's people in the Psalms. Now the writer of Hebrews is saying, I've got an instruction for God's people and I'm going to reach back to that Psalm and now I'm going to bring it forward and I'm going to expound that. So when God speaks, it is always relevant. The Old Testament is the Spirit of God speaking through men just as the New Testament is. It's absolutely timeless. And he quotes almost verbatim, changing only a few words Psalm 95, we just read the excerpt a few minutes ago. And it begins by quoting this. Today, if you hear his voice. If you remember the first warning that we saw back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the warning was, don't drift away from Christ. Was that all that you have to do to drift away from Christ is to not cling to him, right? There's a current that's rushing and pulling you away from him. But here the issue is, is not merely drifting away from Christ. This is a different warning. This is a warning now that comes from those who hear the truth and rather than being softened by the truth, as they hear the truth, they actually become more and more hardened. He says, today, if you hear his voice. So this path to hardness is not someone who's not hearing the truth, it's someone who's hearing it. And the picture is that, that a heart ought to be becoming pliable as truth comes forth. There's a danger that as truth is heard over and over and over, it actually becomes a hardening effect on the heart. And notice there's a sense of urgency. Verse 7, today. Verse 13, today. Verse 15, today. Chapter 4, verse 7, today. Over and over and over. Why say today? We all know it's today. Well, the idea is that there's, there's a window of time. There's a sense of urgency here. It's like Bill Keene used to say, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift of God, which is why we call it the present. Point is, you've got, you've got today, you don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. And so if you hear the voice of Christ today, and you know you're not responding rightly to it, you're not to delay the response and think, perhaps I will do that tomorrow. Perhaps I will do that when I get around to it. It is that you never know when it might be your last time to hear the voice of Christ. And so if you hear it, it is a grace and a mercy that you get to hear from the high priest right now speaking to you. Therefore, today, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's the main takeaway of this whole paragraph. Now, hardening has a very special meaning in the Greek language. It means to harden. <laughs> to harden. To be stubborn. Elsewhere in Scripture, the concept of being stiff-necked, unyielding, resistant. Now think about the context for just a minute. This is written to God's people. It's written to those who have professed faith in Christ, those who have suffered for their profession in the gospel. And the writer is saying, make sure that you don't become resistant. Consider the word resistant. It's very powerful imagery. Think about herbicide-resistant weeds. And anybody who's a farmer or a gardener knows about herbicide-resistant weeds. They're weeds that get treated with an herbicide, and rather than dying like they're supposed to, they begin to develop a resistance to the very poison that's intended to kill them. And next thing you know, you have a garden full, or a yard full, or in the worst case scenario, a field full of weeds that no longer respond the way the herbicide is designed to respond to them and, and to kill those weeds. Instead of being killed by the poison, they simply use it 
to become resistant to the poison. And so eventually they become unaffected by the herbicide. It's an illustration of what the, the writer is concerned about here. He's concerned about those who would hear the word so frequently and become resistant to it and not even see the desperate state of their spiritual condition. Those who would hear the word of Christ week in and week out. He's not writing about the world here. He's not even writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the church. The word of God is to minister to your soul. It's to feed your soul week after week. It's to shape you. It's to soften you. It's to draw you back to the Lord. It's to fix your eyes on him. It's to cleanse you and to wash you. It's to renew your inner man. And so a, a hardness of heart is, is when the truth begins to just kind of bounce off without impact. You hear it, maybe you even have an experience with it, but there's no demonstrable effect from the word of God as you hear it proclaimed. There's a mercy in this warning. This is a warning to everyone in the room. Children, this is a great opportunity for you to stop and think, what is my attitude toward the word of God? You have to sit through a sermon. I have to sit through mom and dad's devotions. I have to sit through instruction, perhaps a lecture every once in a while. Maybe do my devotions because I'm forced to do them. What is my attitude? What is my heart disposition toward the word of God? For all the adults in the room, what is your attitude toward the voice of Jesus Christ? And you can anticipate the question, which is this. Pastor, how do I know if I'm hard-hearted? How do I know if I'm hardening my heart? Sometimes I feel distant from God. Sometimes I, I go to God's word and it feels like, meh. Sometimes I'd, I'd rather be on my cell phone than read the word of God or do just about anything other than read the Bible. Sometimes my prayers feel like they're hitting the ceiling. Sometimes I feel dry. I go through a wilderness experience. There's times where I seem distant or cold in my relationship to the Lord. And sometimes I just keep disobeying and I know I ought to repent, but I don't want to. Does that mean that I'm hardening my heart? See, friends, we need help discerning what is this author talking about and what is he not talking about? See, he's not simply talking about your own weakness and your own sin. He's talking about settling into a pattern where you hear the word of God and you do not respond to it by faith. You disregard God's truth. He's talking about a superficial relationship to truth that becomes a settled pattern and will one day bear fruit in you rejecting Christ himself. You say, okay, that gives me a little bit of clarity. Can you give me some more? Yes. Look at the text. It says, as. Do not harden your hearts as. Thank you, Lord. We get an example. How do you identify the hardness? In your heart that the author is warning about, well, here's a case study. He gives us an example that demonstrates hardness. He gives a, a real-world opportunity to learn these things. And so he says in the second part of verse 8, As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked at that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul writes to the church and he tells them that, that what happened to Israel was written down and it was recorded specifically for our instruction. And what was the instruction? That they would be an example to us that we would not do what it is that they do. So they were a bad example. It's thinking about this. It's, it's not like when you're growing up and your mom uses those bad example stories to deter certain behaviors. I don't know if you experienced that, but you know, you go to the grocery store, you're three or four years old and you're hanging onto the cart and she has to tell you about the little kid that let go of the cart when his mommy was buying the cereal and the bad guys took him and he never saw his mommy again. And so you have that, 
that story tucked away. And then you have the story about the kid that slammed the cart and he wasn't paying attention and he lost his fingers. And then you have the stories about the kid with the fire and the fireworks and the firearms and the campfire. You have the electricity stories and the kid that didn't unplug the toaster before he tried to get the toast out. And your childhood is filled with examples of, of all of these terrible things that happened to children who did the exact thing that your, your mom does not want you to do. That's not the way this example is being used. It's not being used simply as a, a deterrent where it's kind of this, this uh, a bit exaggerated threat. Rather, it's to actually help us understand these are real people and we are people just like them. And so the way that they struggled is the way that we're going to struggle. And in seeing them, we're going to be able to diagnose and understand what it is that this author is talking about. And that is the type of example we're getting. If you were a Hebrew, you knew this example well. Right, that's the point. It's Hebrews. It's written to Hebrews. It's written to people who knew the Old Testament. They loved the Old Testament. They knew numbers better than you and I know numbers. They knew Exodus better than you and I know Exodus. They knew the Psalter better than we know the Psalms. And so all of this is very familiar territory. It's very easy for them to make these connections. And what they're being told is, do not harden your hearts as that first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt. Don't be like them. He says that the day of rebellion, what is he talking about here? Well, when Israel came out of Egypt and God had rescued them from bondage, he'd delivered them through great miracles. That was an impressive act. Pharaoh was, was the most powerful ruler the most powerful nation in the world. God brings everyone out. He demonstrates his gracious covering in the first Passover. And Israel had, had witnessed all of these wonders that God had done. And then he parted the Red Sea and he provided for them in various ways. And then they came to the waters of Meribah and Massa. Hebrews doesn't connect the dot there, but it's implied because that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 95. And this is the point where Israel came and they didn't have any water. And so they grumbled against the Lord. In fact, Exodus 16 says, the, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. They're saying, you know what? We're so thirsty right now. We don't have anything to drink and we wish that we had just died back in captivity. Reason why it's called the rebellion is because this was, was not Merely a, a slip-up. <laughs> you and I read that and we think, man, how often have I grumbled like that against the Lord? And I was just thinking about this yesterday as this passage has been rolling around in my mind. I was doing some yard work last night and I was thinking, what, what thing has God given me that I have not grumbled and complained about in my life? I mean, can we not relate to grumbling and complaining? And yet the issue here is not merely grumbling and complaining. There's something about this that was so significant. They're calling it the rebellion. And so the idea was that, that this was not merely uh, that Israel grumbled and complained, but rather it was a relationship-defining moment. So that moment was something like this. Choose this day whom you will serve. Yahweh or another. At that moment they said, not our God, give us another. And so although there was this event, this was something that was characteristic of these people. And God is particularly offended by it. Because second part of verse 9, they saw his works for 40 years. They saw his works for 40 years. They saw him drop 
12 plagues on the Egyptians. They saw him part the Red Sea. They saw him overwhelm Pharaoh and his armies with the water and kill all of them. They saw God provide manna, quail, water, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day for 40 years. It'd be like going back for us to 1981 and having 40 years of God providing in miraculous ways over and over and over and over. And so the connection that the writer of Hebrews is making is when they rebelled against the Lord, they were rebelling against a very clear testimony of his power and his mercy toward them, and they were hard toward that. And so now you Hebrews have heard the gospel preached to you. You've heard about the glory of Christ. You've heard about all of the work that he has done for you on the cross. You've heard that he's powerful to save you and that he's willing to save you if you simply come to him. And so do not harden your hearts in the way that they did. Don't harden toward Christ in the way that they hardened toward the Lord in the Old Testament. What was the Lord's disposition toward them? How bad did it really get? For sin says, therefore I was provoked with that generation. Literally, I was angry with them. I was incensed. I was offended. John Owen writes, they tempted God by their complaints, their repinings, murmuring, seditions, unbelief, weariness of their condition, with impatient desires and wishings after other things. Hereupon they had frequent trials of the power, care, and faithfulness of God as also of his holiness and indignation against their sins. See, God was angry with that generation. He was provoked to wrath. And his judgment, the, the God who sees all and knows all, was this. They always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Now, when you and I say always, it's typically, like I did, that's not always, it's typically an exaggeration. When you and I say always about what someone has done or never, it's usually because we're frustrated and it slips out, it's what we're thinking, but it's, it's typically an exaggeration. But when God says they always go astray in their heart, he means it. See, this, this entire generation was reprobate. With the exception of the few faithful of the remnant in that, this was an entire generation estimated somewhere between two and a half and three million people that were unbelieving. They did not know the Lord. What's the evidence? It says, they have not known my ways. They haven't known my ways. Think about it this way. If you were to sit down with someone from that generation and you were to say, hey, can you tell me about Yahweh? What is he like? Whatever it is that would come out of their mouth would not line up with his self-revelation. The Lord who's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That wasn't their view of Yahweh. They had a warped view. And so you hear the echo of, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, so they're, they're naming the name of Christ. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the example of Israel here is of a people that never actually knew the Lord. It wasn't simply that they were genuine believers that were backsliding for a season. It was that they had witnessed all of the marvelous testimony of God's mercy and his grace. They'd come so close to actually knowing his, his ultimate salvation and yet somehow they missed it. 
And so this author, after showing us an example that demonstrates hardness, shows us what happens when there's that kind of unbelief. What are the effects that result from hardness? Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God is swearing by his own name. When people want to say something very seriously, they say, I swear to God. God's swearing by himself right now. He's swearing an oath. And in his oath, he is saying, they will not enter my rest. It's irrevocable. I remember this passage. It's, it's burned in my mind because it was when the Lord is beginning to, to show me the glory of God and the sovereignty that he has over all things. And whenever God begins to do that in the heart, you go back to text of scripture and you begin to wrestle with him. Because you begin to understand, maybe, I'm, maybe I wasn't understanding some passages of the Bible rightly and I need to go back and I need to reinterpret them a little bit differently. I'd always thought, well, God delivered the children of Israel right out of Egypt. And they did a few bad things. And so they didn't get to go be in the land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, they had to have a prolonged camping trip for 40 years. They lost probably a couple jewels on their crowns in heaven. But overall, that was it. They lost out on the temporary satisfaction of happiness in the earthly promised land. They lost out on a few rewards in heaven. And I remember being struck. Rereading this passage and saying, that's not what the text says. And thinking, how is it that God would take three million people out of Egypt, deliver them with mighty salvation, give them grace upon grace upon grace, only to swear not that they wouldn't merely not enter the earthly rest of the promised land, but they would not enter the ultimate rest in heaven. That's a, that's a harder pill to swallow. That's a, that's a heavy, heavy concept. Struggled to believe that God could really have been so angry with this generation. Struggled to think that that God would actually treat his people in this way. And there's that little part of, of pride in the human heart that even begins to think, you know, maybe God isn't that fair. They had one little mess up, maybe two, and then wham, he just throws down such a strong consequence. Friends, that's not what's happening here at all. Yahweh has the prerogative to do as he pleases with his creatures. But it's a misunderstanding of this generation and it's why this generation is showing up in Hebrews and in Psalm 95 and why it was recorded in Exodus and Numbers for us. This was not something where they merely messed up and sinned. Listed on the back of your worship guide, 10 ways that Israel tested the Lord. And this is referring to Numbers chapter 14 because when God swore this oath, here's what he said. Numbers 14, 21, But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. This is the hardness that the author is talking about. What were the ten tests? Well, they're listed there for you. The first was that they lacked faith at the edge of the Red Sea. So you think about this. God has delivered Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Twelve plagues. He's humbled Pharaoh. Everyone is wailing in Egypt. Uh, the land has been decimated. Their foodstuffs have been decimated. Israel gets to the edge of the Red Sea and they see 600 chariots coming with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a little change of mind. No more Mr. Nice Guy. And Israel sees them and they begin to say, ha, surely the Lord is going to deliver us like he just delivered us in Egypt. 
No. Exodus 14.11, they said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. We know better than God. We have a better plan than him. We don't trust his character. We don't trust his benevolence toward us. What happens? God graciously, in spite of that response, God graciously wipes out Pharaoh and the armies. And I'm thinking in my heart, you want to respond like that after, after all that I did for you and pulling you out of Egypt? Man, we'll just, you know what? We'll, just, we'll go ahead and let you, uh, let you take on Pharaoh by himself. No, God graciously parts the Red Sea and then destroys the armies of Pharaoh. So you can imagine what would happen. God's delivered us. And you have a Passion Conference. Passion 1997 happens right there on the, the, the beach at the Red Sea. Miriam, according to Exodus 15, the sister of Aaron, got a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing. It's a joyful celebration. This is a, a praise service. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Everyone is singing there on the banks of the Red Sea. I bet it was a, a moment of ecstasy and great joy. Great excitement. And in the song, they're singing things like this. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. This is my God and I will praise him and I will extol him. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working in wonders? And so you have the, the fervor of emotion and excitement basking in the glory of God and an eager profession that, that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is our God. And everyone is stirred up. The second test, number two in your outline, complaining about the bitter water at Merah, that was 72 hours later. 72 hours after the aura of worship dissipated, the emotional high and ecstasy of, of the loud music and the tambourines and the dancing and all of the feelings of closeness to the Lord were gone and the response of faith and trust in the Lord too. And we understand the temptation. You're in the desert. You have no water. You have no source for water. You've got three million people. It's a problem. What does the Lord do? He's gracious to them again. He gives them sweet water. And he promises in, in verse 26 of Exodus 15, I, I personally, Yahweh, I will be your healer. If what? If you just heed my voice. Just hear the sound of my voice. You begin to see these connections that the author of Hebrews is making to Israel. Israel had the opportunity. You know what? You guys keep sinning. I'm going to offer mercy and grace to you. All I ask is this. Heed the sound of my voice. Number three, shortly thereafter, they're complaining about a lack of food in the desert of sin. Exodus 16.3, same song, different verse, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. The Lord was not so unjust as to pull them out of Egypt and then let them starve. Think Yahweh would do that to his people. What a misunderstanding of his kindness and his generosity. And yet they're accusing and grumbling against him as though he's going to leave them high and dry. He might be tempted to think, well, they were complaining technically to Moses, not to the Lord. Well, Exodus 6 8 says, The Lord hears your grumblings that you grumble against him. And Moses says, Who are we, by the way? Your grumblings are not against us, but with the Lord. You know, we complain. We think it's always the, the horizontal complaint. We're complaining against a person. Horizontal complaints are rooted somewhere in a deep distrust and dissatisfaction with the Lord because we're not accepting his providence in our lives. And so our real beef in a complaint is always with the Lord who's behind whatever circumstance we're facing. You think, all right, well, surely God's going to smite him at that point. Surely he's had about enough. No, Exodus 16, 12. I've heard their grumblings. And you know what? Tell them at twilight tonight I'm going to give them meat. 
I'm going to give them exactly what they asked for. And I'm going to fill them with bread. And why did he do it? Exodus 16.12 says, So that then they will know that I am Yahweh, their God. Then they'll trust me. Then they'll know that I'm for them. He did it so that they would know that he was Yahweh, their God. Not Pharaoh's God, not the Canaanites' God, not the Assyrians' God, but the great I am. The Jehovah Jireh, your provider. And so far, what we keep seeing is faithless Israel and a faithful God who just keeps graciously providing for his people. Well, he decides to feed them. And he's going to feed them with bread from heaven, manna. And here are the rules for manna, as you remember. You get manna for six days. There's seven days a week. So how it works is the first five days, you just take a daily portion. Day six, you get a double portion so that you have some for tomorrow. You get to rest on the Sabbath. Those are the rules. Fair and square. Everybody knows the deal right at the beginning. How did they respond to it? Exodus 16, 20. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was very angry with them. You get the temptation though. I haven't been on the streets, but I can imagine. No food. Here for the Israelites, no food, no farms, no farmland. No Sabbath farmer's market downtown. Three million mouths to feed. God sent sweet dough here tonight. We're going to go grab it for a meal today, but what if it doesn't come tomorrow? There's no plan B. There's no refrigerator. There's no pantry. So maybe I'll just, what if, what if he doesn't actually do what he says he's going to do? I'll just scoop a little bit here extra for myself. That wasn't bad enough. Number five. Same episode, but another test. They attempted to collect manna on the Sabbath after being told not to. It's probably my, my favorite of all the tests. It's, it's not funny because it's so tragic and serious, but I just find it a little bit comical. Um, it's like the, the kid that always has to test the instruction. Instruction's undeniably clear. I'm not going to send manna on the Sabbath. And what do they think? You know what? Well, let's see what happens. Let's just get enough on Friday for Friday and then when we wake up on Saturday, we'll go out and we'll just see what happens. Exodus 16, 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, God is, is tired of being disregarded who's continually giving instruction and continually offering mercy, and every time it's being spurned. Sixth test was complaining over a lack of water at Rephidim. Same story, same faithless response. And yet this time, this was really the rebellion. So if you, if you go back to, to verse 8 where it said, as in the rebellion, it was this lack of water that, that kind of became the, the sticking point that that demonstrated all of the unbelief as it was encapsulated. They don't have water and they quarrel with Moses and they grumble against the Lord and it was the same faithless response. Can you imagine what a faithful response would have been? Hey guys, we don't have any water. How do you think the Lord's gonna provide for us this time? Man, he's provided us so many different ways. We've seen him act in so many different manifestations. He's always pulled through for us. How do you think it's going to happen this time? Going to the Lord in prayer, saying, Yahweh, we're scared. Our water's running out. We're starting to get panicky. We need you, but we trust that you will come and provide for us. Come now and do that work. See, the lack of water was a test. It was an opportunity to love and trust God, an opportunity for worship. And instead, they cry out and they accuse Moses of trying to kill them. Number seven, the seventh test, they were engaging in idolatry with the golden calf at Mount Sinai under Aaron. Moses took too long to come back. So the next logical thing, of course, that you would do is grab Aaron and say, we need a God that we can see, that we can worship to be like the other nations. And in the treachery, they made for themselves a golden calf and they worshiped it and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
This is treachery now. They're beginning to attribute the work of God to other gods and they're forsaking Yahweh. This is idolatry. And what they were wanting was something that they could see with their, their own eyes and touch with their own hands that was tangible to trust in that would somehow make them feel more secure than an invisible God who's delivered on every promise he's ever made. And so you begin to see that the problem is not merely these acts of obedience, but it's a lack of trust in God himself. Numbers chapter 11, we find them complaining again at Taborah. That's the eighth test. The ninth test, complaining over a lack of food. It was provoked by the rabble. I relate to them a little bit. They were remembering the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Every time I read that and the fish, I think, okay. I, they would have found a sympathetic heart with me when they began to remind me of those things in Egypt. But even that was a warped view. They said, we got all that for free. They forgot about the bondage that they were delivered from. Finally, the tenth test was refusing to believe the spies who brought the good report and instead wishing to be dead. And the Lord had said, I'm going I'm to just clear a path. I'm going to conquer your enemies for you. Really, if you trust me, I'm going to make it very, very easy for you to possess the land that I've promised you. Spies spent 40 days there. They come back. Caleb said, all right, let's, let us go up at once and take the land. We're going to be able to overcome it. And the other men that came with him said, we're not able to go up against those people for they are stronger than we are. And the whole congregation raised a loud cry. And they wept that night. And they grumbled. And they sang the same song now about the eighth or ninth verse, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. And they said, let us choose another leader and go back to Egypt. See, when you read Hebrews chapter 3 and the Lord swears that they won't enter the rest, you're tempted to think that God was being unjust in some way. And you realize that for God to not smite the entire nation right there was gracious. I mean, that's the appeal that, that Moses makes. Lord, Lord, preserve this generation. Preserve the line of the Messiah. Preserve your people. God had said, I'm going to start over with just you, Moses. Over and over, they tested the Lord. They refused to obey the sound of his voice. And so that's the history lesson that would, would be in the mind of all of these Hebrews who are, are tempted in their hearts to, to minimize the fact that although they kind of have some association with Jesus Christ, there's some among them that actually distrust the faithfulness of Christ. And so to those with that history lesson in mind, you hear today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. See what's happening? See, for that generation, it wasn't that they merely had a momentary lapse into sin. It wasn't even that they were in a season of sin. It wasn't that they had a particular weakness in the area of grumbling that they just struggled with all their lives. See, the hardness was, was not merely a matter of only disobedience. Every believer disobeys God. You have sins of commission, which are uh, the wrong things that you're not supposed to do that you do do, and the sins of omission, which are the good things that you're supposed to do that you don't do. So every believer disobeys God. Christianity is a gospel to sinners. The issue is how you relate to the Lord himself. That is the sticking point. You see, that generation didn't know the Lord. They didn't trust him. And so when he spoke, they never submitted to his voice. Writer of Hebrews is concerned that these believers have the early warning signs of a growing resistance to the word. Just like that herbicide to the weeds. That the more it's applied and the more it's applied, the more resistant the weeds become. And so how he's arguing is this. Church, I've shown you that Jesus is a merciful and gracious Savior who provides you with what God requires for your forgiveness. Now, how do you relate to his voice? And I would just ask you, how do you relate to the voice of Christ? Do you sit in judgment over the word of Christ? Do you dismiss the words of Christ that are unpalatable to you? Do you quarrel with the Lord in resistance when 
he speaks clearly to an issue of your life that you're unwilling to give up? Friends, this is a, a call to flee from that type of unbelief. And on the encouraging side, I, I would ask, do you have a heart that wants to obey the Lord for his sake? Do you understand that that is supernatural? Do you even, amidst unbelief, trust him? Ultimately, deep down inside, and his goodness toward you. And do you find that even when you fail, you are drawn back to the truth, and there you affirm the truth, and you delight in it? See, if you are the voice of Christ, then you are his sheep. Even if at times you distrust him, even if at times you grumble and, dis and complain, even though at times you might want different leaders and different food and different drink, you are soft to his voice, if you hear his voice, then you are his. And he is your great high priest. Maybe you're sitting here right now and you say, Pastor, I'm hard-hearted. What do I do? As I'm hearing what happened in Exodus, as I'm hearing what happened in Numbers, it's, it's, it's as though the Spirit of God is speaking to me today, just like in Psalm 95, and I'm hearing the voice of the Lord and I'm seeing that is my biography of resistance then you go to the God who made you and you trust him to fix this problem for you. See, the wonderful promise of the new covenant is that God would take out your heart of stone, that heart that is hardened to him, and he would remove it and he would replace it with a heart of flesh. A new heart, a new spirit. What's the evidence that you have that? Well, Jeremiah 31, 33, that God puts his very own law within you and he writes it on your heart. How do you like that? He tattoos the law on your heart. And he will be your God and you will be his people. See, the evidence that you hear the voice of God is that the Spirit of God testifies when you hear the word that you receive it by faith. Not perfectly, but you affirm that is the voice of my shepherd. And so the passage today says, today, if you hear the voice of Christ, do not harden your heart. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, what a glorious truth this is. Lord, the signs of your mercy, the signs of your mercy to Israel over and over and over, and then your signs of mercy in exposing our unbelief and even dealing with that problem. Lord, we thank you for the voice of Jesus Christ that has given us life. Lord, even as he came and as Peter testified, uh, there's nowhere else that we would go for salvation. There's nowhere else that we would go to know our God. Uh, there's no other place that we would go to find um, the purpose of life, how to get to heaven, forgiveness of sins, than simply the voice of Christ. You have the words of eternal life. And so, Lord, we thank you for the marvelous work that you've done among us. And, Lord, we say, as we pray so often, we do believe, help us in our unbelief, for Christ's sake. Amen.